welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wired, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Anna Brailsford, CEO, Code First. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, if you can um, kind of set the vision for the audience in terms of what you're doing at Code First Girls right now. Sure. So Code First Girls is the largest community of female coders and technologists in the UK. Uh, we teach coding on well over 50 campuses uh, and other centres outside universities as well, uh, from people from different backgrounds. Uh, and essentially, we teach women uh, things like front-end web development, Python, uh, and uh, SQL, an introduction to data science. Uh, and we do that for free uh, so that we can give those women the skills they sorely need in order to break into the technology industry. Um, in the last year, we really stepped up around creating greater connection with industry as well. So connecting with companies that are really, really in need of female developers or female technologists and helping them connect, engage and be included in the education of our community. Absolutely amazing. Um, so that's something that's been hugely needed and you've, um, clearly done a brilliant market lead job um, of it. If you try to explain the scale that you're operating at at the moment, so you said working with 50 different, um, was it campuses, how you, 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 you referenced yeah. it? So 50 different universities. Yeah. Um, just to, to provide some context around that, they estimate around uh, three and a half thousand women um, graduate, as it were, from uh, computer science degrees in the UK from the entire a higher education system combined. Uh, Code First Girls at the moment is training in excess of 10,000 uh, women per year, wow. how to conclude. Yeah. So, um, you know, we are doing around about three times uh, all of our higher education systems combined. Yeah, and you're operating in uh, what geographies overall? Uh, so we're all over the UK and Ireland. Um, if I were to paint a picture for you, if I had a visual right now of uh, all the universities, I could put a pin probably in just about every, you know, area, major city. We're in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, um, I, you know, Ireland, like Dublin, for example. Um, we're, we're absolutely all over. And we're particularly interested in the, what we see as the future tech hubs. So obviously London, we're incredibly well established in London. We have been for a number of years, but increasingly what we're seeing from our industry clients is a need around, uh, for example, Bristol, Manchester, uh, Birmingham, Edinburgh, and increasingly Glasgow as well. Yep. So we're really um, trying to invest more money in the free education in those areas in order to create greater pipelines of women that can enter the industry. And you... Um, gave us some really useful statistics um, there. 
So three and a half thousand um, ladies are graduating, or there or thereabouts, um, mm -hmm. the last couple of years from a computer science degree. Yeah. Um, and so when you're um, kind of forming these partnerships with the campuses, then what are you doing? Are you going to the university and um, marketing into students there that they should also in parallel to their um, current education upskill into coding too is that what is that's one of the things that's happening yeah so there's there's numerous ways that uh, we work with universities and in truth there's there's no one real sort of you know absolute killer method as to how to do it um, so we'll have different levels of kind of embedding at different universities um, so, for example, in some universities, this has been completely student led and after a while, the demand uh, becomes so high that typically um, the chancellors or the vice chancellors start to take notice. Uh, we had an example of that with the University of Greenwich where, um, you know, the students, the demand came from the students. Typically, we go in, we engage the students, we, we get them learning. And off the back of that, the, um, you know, the very, very senior people in the university will start getting involved because they start seeing benefit to what we're doing. Um, increasingly, we're connecting with uh, careers leads at universities as well, yeah. um, and also through uh, student outreach. So there's, there's kind of three different ways into a university, but the one thing that we wanted to absolutely um, you know, ensure was kind of bottom-up organic demand. Because if you can generate bottom-up organic demand from the students themselves, um, it, it creates a kind of a, an unstoppable momentum um, and that's why we, we utilize social media so much um, for these women to be able to have access to free education uh, is quite powerful particularly given the price of tuition fees these days but factored into that uh, we don't stop women from different countries taking our courses either so usually people that uh, are quite shocked that we're not charging them for what we do um, and as a result of that, there's a huge, huge demand. Um, we're seeing sort of 42% year on year growth for what we're doing from the women. Um, and yeah, essentially when we're on campus, we usually work around their studies. So what they're doing is voluntary, but they want to be able to learn a skill that they think will be really, really important upon graduation. Uh, with some universities, they, they've gone as far as actually, um, putting our courses on their degree transcripts, which means we're accredited at some universities as well. So yeah. students can also gain credits. Uh, so it really depends on the individual university, but there's one thing for absolute sure, uh, demand is off the charts to learn tech skills, particularly yeah. amongst women, yeah. if they get the opportunity. And the question therefore is, um, why is the demand not off the chance to apply for the technical degrees? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really, really good question. And I, I hate, again, I, I don't mean to make vast generalizations here, but there is an argument that even if you take computer science at university, you know, not all computer science degrees even contain coding. Mm. Um, there have been many critics that say um, with many computer science degrees, because technology moves so quickly, by the end of those three years, typically a lot of the education will be out of date anyway, in yep. terms of coding. So there is an increasing demand for up-to-date, fresh, relevant uh, learning around coding at point of need. Um, computer science 
can be criticized for being too theoretical. Um, it can be very academic. And our argument is you don't necessarily need that to be able to break in and to be able to enter into the industry. Um, what we want to show women is very tangible outputs from being able to learn to code. For example, at the end of our web development course, you'll be able to create a website. At the end of our Python course, you can create an app. Yep. Um, these are very tangible outcomes where women can start to innovate, they can start to see their business ideas come to life, or they can start to see how they might be able to work for a major corporation like WhatsApp, for example. And Anna, what therefore is the value of going to university? <laughs> very controversial question um <laughs> uh, having you know numerous degrees myself i think i'd be a <laughs> hypocrite uh for saying that there was no value in going to university there's absolutely huge value in going to university um i'm not for a second saying that code first girls can in any way replicate you know the type of content or experience you might get on a traditional university course however what i would say is that Increasingly, I think providers like us working in partnership with universities is a much needed disrupt, uh, disruption of the system and the way education is delivered. Because quite frankly, you know, if universities were hitting all the needs, I don't think Code First Girls would exist. Yeah, well, I think I think that, um, yeah, there's a few there's a few things. So there's there's the method of the um, the education that has traditionally happened in um, yeah. university where um, you know people are learning in in boxes um, mm -hmm. for periods of time so the problem that I find there is that you know some people get to one side of it quicker than others and therefore there's periods where they're learning and periods where they're not learning and then some yeah. people are always at the end of the box so the way that you move somebody through a course doesn't work quite as well as when somebody's upskilling themselves and can move through a course themselves. So that's just one fundamental systematic problem. Um, but then also if I look at, you know, what the market um, is looking for in the main across data science, data engineering, full stack dev product, et cetera, the, the skill sets that are in high demand, mm -hmm. then, then you're completely right. Well, one of the points you say is poignant which is more often than not, you can only really have learned it in the last year or two because the way that technology A changes and then the, the variation of that particular technology is updated. So you often get to this point where once somebody's understood the, the fundamentals of coding, if they go and spend a year learning um, a particular data science um, tool, like let's say Hadoop, then that's actually very marketable and, and they can go and earn disparately more money than if they were to take the conventional route of getting a degree and then staying in a corporation for a long period of time. So like we're in this huge period of flux where it is kind of hard to know what the right path to do and therefore what you're possibly suggesting where it would be, you know, if you are very bright, if you're hell-bent on going to university, absolutely do that. There's loads of upside from going there educationally and also experience-wise as well. Uh, mm -hmm. whilst you're working out what you want to do but then also in parallel learn some really relevant coding um, learn some coding that has commercial purpose right now and then you come out um, absolutely at the front of the queue to get 
whatever great job or set up whatever it might be and um, that you want to do so I, I love that concept the other thing that i do want to go back to and push on is um why are not more women entering into the the, the computer science or the engineering degrees in the first place because three and a half thousand coming out of computer science nationally i didn't know that statistic that's insanely low what how many people overall are coming out of computer science do you know yeah um so women women make up i think around please don't quote me on this but i think around 12 percent of um computer science let me i can come back i can actually google that whilst we're here we have slides so, on stuff. so that's somewhere in the realms of maybe and we're not quoting anyone and everything here definitely don't quote me um it's maybe twenty five thousand guys coming out yeah i would say in the region 20, of, yeah and then three and a half thousand girls so why do you think that is um this is like this is literally people have dedicated studies to this yeah. um i don't think there's any one clear answer um one thing that consistently consistently appears is this perception of tech being a boys club um and this feeling that if women join a lot of courses they're probably going to be the only woman on the course or a handful of women on the course um that both applies by the way to industry and to formal study um i can't tell you how many women i i honestly believe anecdotally that puts off and that's one of the reasons why code first girls i think exists and that we want to carve out spaces for women to feel that they can be empowered they can feel vulnerable and you know they can ask questions and they can support each other through that process it's really quite special i think to kind of you know flip the concept on its head and say we're not just saying it's a boys club we're actually giving you probably some of the skills um, advantages and space that you wouldn't have normally have received that's part of the reason why i think we're so popular yep um, and rightly so because it's a great thing that you're doing now after university and those partnerships you have what are you doing in industry how are you partnering you said part of the more recent um efforts that you've been making is partnering with large organizations um what's going on there talk us through that part um so you know effectively code first goals in my opinion is sitting on probably one of the most valuable talent pools in the uk um given that there's only sort of 17 percent women in the technology industry um you know we have now well over fourteen thousand women that we've educated in the, the fundamentals alone typically in excess of 60 percent of those women will be positively influenced to want to enter a career in technology regardless of their degree discipline so we work with companies in numerous different ways some companies simply want to engage the women to get their brand out there uh, and to have their brand top of mind uh, as and when those women come to decide whether they're going to apply for roles, uh, technology roles. Uh, so, for example, some clients come to us and they say, Anna, we're having um, real strategic sort of weaknesses around, you know, uh, attracting women in, the, in Glasgow. You know, what can you do to get our brand top of mind in Glasgow to show that we're a really good employer for women and we're willing to invest in them? 
that would be a typical partnership that we might work on and we might target our efforts within um, sort of the Glasgow higher education systems. Uh, another example with much more kind of clear ROI uh, would be a company coming to us and saying, Anna, we want, want to run a boot camp, uh, which we also run uh, company specific boot camps where we will put together a curriculum with the company. And typically after, say, three months of engagement around the company's particular tech stacks um, and methodologies, a woman can walk into a job as a junior software developer. Now, we do something very unique in that process, and we don't pass any cost on to the woman. So what we're really saying here is that for a lot of companies to create sustainable talent streams of women in technology, what we tend to say to them is, to what extent are you willing to invest in their education in order for us to get them to the point where they can become a software developer, a DevOps engineer, uh, and we are working on more and more projects like that, where we, we will do end-to-end -end selection of women within the community. We will then take the women through the training. We will work and partner with the company. And typically through that process, we tend to place about 90% of women successfully in technology roles uh, in big companies. How do you um, qualify if you think the company is um, as excellent as it should be? to um to have this talent um come and work for it you mean you know how does the company say how do we qualify the company as, as being a good company for our candidates is that what you mean yeah so um as, as someone who runs a headhunting business um yeah. i have this challenge myself which is um offsetting thinking about a commercial opportunity with reputation yeah. so um I have a excellent um, candidate who I want to make sure we do the right thing for and is going to get their next best opportunity. Um, as a headhunting firm, this is very different to you perhaps, um, we can't just go and work with everybody, right? Because of the nature of our business, we're not a recruitment business. So we have to ally and partner with just a select few in given verticals that we think are the ones that uh, represent the best opportunity. And then what we expect in return is them to really buy into our process and for us to become part of their culture so we can, yeah. we can become like an extension of them to the talent through the process, um, which is the only reason we do it. That's what we enjoy doing. And so I have to go through a process of trying to qualify um, like a portfolio analyst <laughs> if yeah. I think that, that, that we should be selling them, right? And because there's a lot of companies that do very well that don't necessarily treat their people in all the different divisions equally or well. And so you, of course, are looking for businesses, I assume, who've um, assumed they don't want to have bias um, in their business and are going to give equal opportunity all the way right up to the top. So is there a process that you, you go through to do that? Um, typically what we do is we have pilots with companies. Um, that's quite deliberate. Um, it gives us a chance and also the company a chance to see how we both work. I think there is nothing like a pilot to yep. kind of understand the values of a company uh, and to understand to what extent you can create true partnerships. For me, if you do something initially at a smaller scale, it's very, very evident quite quickly uh, which companies want to create partners and which companies, you know, are transactional and um, yeah. you look at um, kind of women as numbers 
and you know are, are sort of it's more of a churn and you know for a fact that those women aren't going to be retained as well yeah we put all this effort into getting women into organizations and getting them trained up to be able to do this work the last thing we want to see is them walk off the job in a year's time so when we look at a client we're not just looking at how they work with us, you know, how we initially pilot with them, our initial experience. But then we start to look at, say, figures over time as well yeah. to see how happy women are, whether they're staying in the company, you know, what could be done differently next time. It's very much a process of constant iteration. I don't think we just have a kind of a cookie cutter approach. We're yeah. constantly iterating what we do and we're yeah. constantly iterating on our partnerships. And there have been partners that we have turned down on the basis that we do not think it would be in the best interests of our community. Yeah, um, I don't have that formula either. The method you talk about is right, isn't it? You've got you've to watch it as it goes. And then what you've got to your advantage is, I suppose you've got your community then in these businesses who are feeding back their experiences um, which is looping back and allowing you to know if you, you buy into that partnership more. Um, yeah. So, and if, by the way, the, 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 the stories from the women, incidentally, in my opinion, um, the narratives are probably the most powerful like form of testimony or proof point that you can get yeah. as to what that candidate experience is like and the extent to which you've made an impact on that woman's life. Yeah. So for me, um, I know everyone always asks you know, the metrics, what's the ROI? Sometimes when I hear those stories, I'm like, that will trump everything else in our armory. Um, sometimes you just can't put a measure on things like that, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's one of the really nice things if you're in um, any type of job where when you're getting it right, you're improving somebody's um, career, you're you know, putting a spring into their step and they're getting all the kind of intellectual stimulation they wanted. Mm -hmm. uh, that's one of the real pleasures that, that we've got with the work we do. Um, I, I won't just talk about metrics, by the way, but I'm going <laughs> to go back. To, I'm going to go back to a number that I heard there. So you've got there or thereabouts 13,000, um, what, what, what would you call it? So um, ladies who have at some point um, partaken in coding, upskilling, with code first girls yeah so it's around so we're at, at the moment literally today we have a live counter in front of us we're at about fourteen and a half thousand, um and they will have gone through at least the fundamentals uh of either front end um python or yep. data science yeah um, and when we say the fundamentals quite it, it's not just like you know a, a small amount of learning it, it is it tends to be uh, an eight week yep. um, of learning that they've been through okay so that's so powerful. And um, now let's think of those, those people as, um, as a commercial opportunity. <laughs> um, seriously. So did, did, what, <laughs> does the community have, um, have the ability to incubate projects within it? Have there been companies that have spun out of it? Uh, is this something you're looking into? Yeah, I mean, and quite frankly, you know, in my opinion, we need to get a lot better at our own sort of data gathering exercises and what these women go on to do. Um, but yes, a, a number of women have started their own businesses uh, from our community. And when we last did a survey, 
uh, I would say 50% of the women want to start their own businesses and around 50% want to join organizations. Yeah. Uh, having said that, we all know that probably about, is it, I believe the stat is one in 10 uh, startups will actually succeed. So, um, you know, whether those women have gone on to succeed, we're not, we're, we don't know. We need to audit that properly. But a lot of our women are interested in becoming entrepreneurs as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's both sides, really. And if you set up a business, then you're at an advantage if you have access to this network. And, and do they get access to the network? How would they do that? Uh, is there a platform, a communication tool that everyone sat on? Would they um, come back to you guys via email? How's, how does it, how's it work? Once you're in the club, um, how are people still um, opportunizing relationships and learning from each other and sometimes hiring each other and so on and so forth? So we have numerous touch points with our community. Uh, as an example, I think we're one of the biggest users of Slack. <laughs> Right. I don't want to say in the world, but we, we have a pretty big Slack community. Yeah. Um, uh, also, increasingly, you know, with the women's permission, we're also collecting uh, far more sophisticated and refined data points. The idea behind that uh, being, can we connect those women increasingly with better opportunities, both within the community itself, but also within external within within externally approved partners. So um, I would say we're really you know stepping up in terms of data. Uh, we will regularly use engagement forums, for example, like Slack, uh, and we also do a huge amount around events and activities to get the women together as well. Obviously, pre-COVID, uh, we had a number of face-to-face uh, -face activities going on, usually kind of hosted by our partner companies. Post-COVID, uh, we've had a lot of virtual events and virtual activities. Uh, so the first being we had a global hackathon uh, where we had well over, I think we've got 200 women now, coding solutions. Uh, they will come together over a series of two to three weeks with a whole events program for those women to come together, get industry advice. They'll receive workshops as to how to take the product that they've created and spin it out into a business. Um, there's numerous ways that we can support these women throughout the process. Uh, and the first week of September, uh, we are planning to have almost like a virtual festival as well. Um, because we do not believe actually that people will get to back to normal potentially by September. So we wanna offer a virtual festival which focuses on opportunities for women in technology uh, and our industry partners joining that uh, as a kind of learning process over a week. Wow, I thought you meant a music festival or something. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, like, we're going with that vibe, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's a lot more about coding. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could code some new uh, music platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's, that's, that sounds really fun. Um, the, um, the Slack then, so you've got several thousand plus people on this Slack. Yeah, yeah we have. It's, it's, it's valuable. <laughs> I've got... I've got an awful lot less on my Slack and it's still yeah. um, a disastrous learning curve in many ways, particularly now we're all um, operating from isolation. Um, but it's obviously a really useful tool for you guys. Um, mm -hmm. What are some of the measures you've put in? How do you, how do you, um, I'm pretty sure most of the audience are on some type of thing like Slack. So let's, yeah. let's, let's go into this. What, what, how are you using it? Have you, 
got quite anal with like what different channels are allowed for like someone general it just has to be this after you share something then you have to like put a command into it or is it just a free-for-all what's going on on that slack no and i have to be honest i do not manage slack um so my problem one of my program managers would be better placed to describe this um but you know ultimately um people are organized by their learning groups that they tend to have started off within um initially there's quite a you know a buzz of activity around the, the, the learning groups, their learning classrooms, all of the you know, materials will be posted, they'll be introduced to their instructor. And then from that, they will be transitioned into um, alumni channels. Uh, and those alumni channels might be segmented, you know, I think there's different criteria upon which we segment the alumni as well. Um, but people tend to stay engaged with each other by the way, I'm not suggesting that this is the ultimate solution. Uh, one thing that we are looking quite heavily at is can Code First Girls create their own platform so that we start utilising this fantastic community and this level of engagement. We're not trying to become another Slack, but we do think that we could build something where both women and partners could come together and probably engage in a far more effective way. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, I'll introduce you to our um our chief product uh, officer who uh is a lady and phd and uh her phd um is all about communication on digital platforms <laughs> and uh, i'm sure she'll, she'll be fascinated in that project if you do that and maybe yeah. add maybe add some value she's she's horrified with how we use our slack <laughs> that's, that's fine we're not trying to be a platform um Cool. So thanks for that. I think that gives us a really um, fantastic kind of idea of what's going on with the business um, right at the moment. What are you spending your time doing if you were um, trying to set the scene for what a day or a week is, is like for Anna at the moment? Uh, do you know what? It's actually a lot busier than I thought it would be initially I was really worried um, with COVID and I thought how's this going to affect things um, we're based at, at Old Street um, and as soon as our offices closed down I was kind of thinking you know how are we going to get this going what are we going to do um, so a lot of our time initially was spent on investing quite heavily into pivoting our courses online We'd always intended to do that. That was always in our plan. Um, incidentally, that's, that's my background. That's, uh, I've come from companies that you know, um, do everything online and all of their learning is provision is online. So for me, when I got here and I was like, oh my God, we're teaching this many women face to face. I mean, it's literally unheard of. Um, I've never ever seen anything like it. Uh, so we spent a lot of time you know, changing the materials, training up instructors, ensuring we could get everything online. We then transitioned around 2,000 women. We've made further provision for about, I think, another 3,000 women uh, before summer yep. to receive learning. So a lot of it has been kind of making structural changes in the business uh, to ensure that we can um, accommodate the demand that we're receiving. Um, yep. We are receiving I think we've received in the past 10 days well in excess, we've processed well in excess of 1,200 applications from women that want to learn how to code in the last, in the last 10 days alone. So 
the demand that we're getting on a daily basis is huge. So ensuring that we've got the structure and the strategy in the business to be able to meet that demand, um, ensure that we hit our KPIs, even though things have dramatically changed, and also to ensure that we are bringing in um, revenue as well. Because, you know, I say to a lot of people, although we reinvest a lot of our money back into the women's education, we need to be a revenue generating business, uh, otherwise we wouldn't all be here. Um, and a lot of clients at the moment are going through quite significant spending freezes. Um, you know, a lot of our contracts have been put on hold. So a lot of this period has been for me, how do we keep revenue coming in um, and create uh, sort of plans between now and September and October um, to ensure that we don't absolutely fall off a cliff as well uh, in terms of our revenue. And Anna, you're, um, so I don't think we, we, we clarify that, you're a, you're a kind of not-for-profit um, yeah. first girls. Um, and so the job as the CEO, as you explain it, is of course still to generate revenue because the more revenue the, you pay for your staff, you pay for overheads and you can invest into the business more. So it's yeah. still looking at it um, from a commercial perspective. And so recently there's obviously stress because um, as you say, clients have kind of stripped costs out of their business at the initial panic of COVID for sure. Um, I'm experiencing a similar reaction, I think, to you where um, that's happened with our clients too, in part. Uh, and then on the flip side of that, um, and we're only a small headhunting business, we've had five times the amount of candidates applying to us over yeah. the, the last short term so like just like you said you've had 1200 uh, applicants to, to upskill encoding if we put a job advert out at the moment because we're fortunate still to have work with some of our bullish clients are we getting like 500 applications for it and then wow. um through every social channel they're working their way to me and being like lloyd I like the look of this job, you know, and I've got, go, down, aren't they? I've got to go through 500 people. And like, of course, we're, we're making sure that we're responding to people um, because people are worried about their careers, A, but also B, people are taking this as a, a time to reflect on if things were uh, everything that they hoped. And if not, um, well, let's line up the next thing whenever the um, economy comes good again, which hopefully is this year at some point. And so from a business perspective, whilst you look at the silver linings, you know, there are some, right? You have an opportunity for more people who are applying to you and you to give them a kind of caring service in, in a tricky time. You have an opportunity to make inroads to potential partners and clients that might have been harder to, to do when everything was really busy. Um, so you also have the opportunity to fast track some of the initiatives that you were looking to do. And you, you guys have done all of those things. So yeah. commend you for that. That's, fun, that's fantastic work. Um, what, um, what do you hope for um, once we're through this period? How do you see the next um, kind of phase for you guys? Do you, do, you, do you always stay in the UK? Are you looking to expand geographies? Oh, yeah. I mean... I don't think I'm getting much sleep. <laughs> uh, it's a very good question um, because naturally, organically, we are globalizing whether we like it or we don't. And I think that has been very much um, 
I don't want to use the word exacerbated, but definitely you know, it's like giving it jet fuel when you go virtual because what we've noticed is, you know, we'll have in our hackathon, we've got women in Lebanon, we've got women in Spain who are coding throughout the lockdown period. And we didn't want, oh, there you go, Le Leb Lebanese mug. <laughs> Lebanese Lloyd. Lebanese <laughs> Lloyd. <laughs> Well, my name is Lloyd Ahmed Bahari Reslin Amzawahed, so I'm Lebanese, yeah. <laughs> so, right, well, home country represent, we've got a lot of women in your country coding at the moment. Awesome. Uh, There's some great universities there. Yeah, 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 there is. Um, we didn't want to um, confine it, actually, to the UK and Ireland. We wanted to make it global because we were just getting so many organic requests. Equally, um, you know, women that we teach on campus just because they're studying in the UK doesn't mean they're going to be British. They come from all over the place and yeah. they take those skills uh, back to their home country. So for example, the other day, a client said to me, you know, how many women have you got in Poland? And I actually said, I didn't know. I went and checked and I was like, wow, we've got 200 women that we've taught in Poland that Amazing. have gone back yeah. to their home country. So whether we like it or we don't, we are actually globalizing. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about actually was our career switcher courses. Um, so increasingly for women that aren't kind of at university level or sort of under the age of 23, we're offering subsidized courses as well for women that might be slightly older or outside of that category. Uh, women that either have a job and want to switch their career into tech or for example, returners. So women that have had babies, yeah. uh, they, you know, they feel that they're a lot of women I've talked to have felt that they're completely out of it in terms of their next career move. Yep. They are upskilling now in tech and coding and thinking about entering into a tech career. So a lot of our career switcher courses uh, are for women that actually have, I don't want to use the word have felt obsolete, but have felt like um, they want to find new skills to start something fresh. And yep. man from the market is very much coming around these skills. Yep. So it's not just kind of that 23 bracket. We're seeing um, a lot of women outside of that who want to switch things up as well. And that's going global. Um, yeah. we, we, we're not in control of that. As soon as we put the, the courses online, you know, you have people from all over the world uh, deciding that they're gonna they're gonna uh, join the courses, especially our career switches. So, I get it's um, it's exhausting and it's tough work. But it's <laughs> it, it's <laughs> it's a it's a mission well worth um, putting everything into. And um, you know, I can relate. I hire. Um, with, with I, tr I try my best to hire with zero bias apart from who's going to do a really great job over a, a long period of time whether it's for a client or, or whether it's for myself and you know at Mana Search we have a number of um, ladies who've had children and come back to work mm -hmm. um, you know because they wanted to 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 have a great career um, and uh you know, I, I had that experience myself where like, if I use one example, like the particular lady, she just literally broke down and cried when I offered her the job because she just didn't expect that to happen. And I was like, I really don't understand it because she, she came with 10 years of phenomenal experience and then had gone and, um, you know, decided to have a family for a period of time. And for me as the employer, it's like, well, this is fantastic because, you know, now I've got somebody who, um, when you're looking to hire somebody, you're looking for somebody to really appreciate what you're doing as a company, right? And if you've got that, then 
you know, the rest is typically trainable if they have the, you know, if they have the intelligence for whatever role it is. And so like I look at it as um, a massive opportunity for you guys, that particular category, because, you know, at that point as an employer, and I know you're not supposed to discriminate, but you do have somebody who has experience. So they've, they've, they've kind of, um, they've had business experience, which is useful in some roles. Uh, yeah. They're also at a point where they're probably looking at their career not impatiently. They're like, if I can join a firm where for several years um, I can have a good career, then I'm going to really invest into it. So then if the employer, you invest into them. So it constitutes just as great a hire as somebody who's at 23 and, and, and fresh out of university, of course. Um, so it's a big opportunity for you. I understand the, the Poland example. We work in Poland as well. Amazing universities, fantastic tech scene. You've got Goldman Sachs and everybody there now because um, the the uh, the education is very heavily mathematical some of the best uh, technical and maths people from Poland and so it sounds to me like um, you need to hire more of a team you need to potentially and this is not pitch by the way um, <laughs> I'm looking for more men at the moment if you want to join us <laughs> We'll, we'll see. Just call Pope Pascal's doesn't mean that we, you know, we we don't take men in the team. Like it's like, please, uh, we want the guys to apply. Well, absolutely, and um, and we'll 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 talk about that. But I mean, generally speaking, um, how does this work then? I'm curious about this. So, if you're a non-for-profit and you've <laughs> got funds that you work from from some type of grant mechanism, uh, and I no, um, so yeah, how? A, how does it work? And B, if you need to meet this opportunity to scale yeah. and you need to spend more money on, by the sounds of it, team operations and marketing, yeah. how are you justifying that, that now? You're needing to get in, lobby in front of the right type of stakeholders. What, talk us through that. Yeah, so Code First Girls is completely funded by um, companies and company revenue. So we don't have any government grants. Um, we don't have any help actually from the government. It's really interesting because I had a meeting with the civil service and they need tons of, of female software engineers. Um, and they were like, are we not funding you? And I was like, no, would you believe it? <laughs> we had a really funny moment. Uh, but no, we, we were originally funded um, to teach 20,000 women how to code by the end of 2020 uh, by five key partners, um, Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, KKR, uh, OVH, and Trainline. And they were our five uh, sort of original big flagship partners that came on board around a campaign to teach 20,000 women. Yeah. That, is a, that is a campaign, right? But that process, and we're due to come to the end of that this year um, and hit those targets, that process has created this huge level of momentum my job when I came in a year ago was very much how do we now turn this from a campaign really which did incredibly well and I think surpassed everyone's expectations into a sustainable business model um, you know that is far more sophisticated when it comes to things like growth marketing when it comes to potentially going global when it comes to putting on learning online and ultimately creating connections with different industry partners um, of which we are now, you know, very, very deeply in conversation, have great relationships, I would say, within excess of about 50 different companies at the moment. Um, yeah. Sort of create more sustainable revenue streams and also product around what we do. Uh, so it's more readily understandable and more scalable. Yep. 
And those five original companies, therefore, mm -hmm. are, are happy with the initiative thus far. Um, I hope so. <laughs> I, I really hope so. I, I, I think so, very much so. Let, let, let's, let's go. <laughs> and, um, and in terms of, you know, you have to hit certain goals or report into certain people. Mm -hmm. um, you, I know, are on for a, you know, kind of record-breaking Q1, and then obviously COVID has has affected that, like like yeah. most businesses. Is it is there a, a a time frame that you're going to try and like go back and present to these five companies, all the new fifty companies, and raise a load of money so that you can you can um, you can kind of hyper growth? It's something that we're very much looking into at the moment with the board. Um, I'm, I'm not sure whether a lot of people are aware of this, but Code First Girls is actually the kind of non-for-profit arm of Entrepreneur First. It was yeah. spun up Entrepreneur First out of the two founders, Alice and Matt. Um, they're very, very keen to see and support Code First Girls in terms of it succeeding. Uh, and I think they are certainly conversations that you know are being had where we need to understand what next steps look like. COVID certainly did uh, put a huge spanner in the works, um, I think, for our plans over the next six months. Uh, so I think like a lot of businesses right now, um, the kind of strategy moving forward is let's hit our KPIs for the year, certainly in terms of, you know, getting 20,000 women coding. Let's keep the business running well. Um, let's do as much as we can to continue to engage companies to understand when uh, spending freezes are lifted because I, I strongly believe they will be lifted because the issue around talent and particularly female tech talent is that we're really talking here about a necessity. This is not a nice to have. Uh, if you're committed to diversion uh, um, and inclusion within your company, you know, we're talking about a real necessity here. So I do believe it will come back. It's just a question of when. Yeah, so from what I'm seeing who I'm talking to, which is, you know, a peer group who own recruitment and search businesses and a peer group who uh, are on boards or own companies, then I think you are positioned in the absolutely best place possible. Um, the companies will, through this next period, absolutely prioritise um, the type of talent that you have. A, because they're coders, so everything right now, like today, if I look at the pipeline of business that still comes into us, it is all devs, right? So um, some of the skill sets that have been affected are more um, voluminous and less quantitative. So marketing, administrative, etc. cetera. Um, but in terms of the companies that still are trying to hit their business plans or have scale and even getting rid of certain tranches of their, their staff, unfortunately, they're coming to us for coders. They're coming to us for data engineers. And so that takes me to the, 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 the next um, thing that I think uh, I would really love to hear from you because you've got such a good view of this. Um, what are the skills that you recommend people to be looking to, to upskill into? We did, um, we did our own survey, but I don't think we're anywhere near the type of um, knowledge base or data set that you've got. Um, but for instance, what we were interested in is, okay, so seven years ago, getting SAS as a statistical tool was a really useful commercial thing if you're working in um, a consumer 
uh, industry sector. Today, it looks like maybe R Python is better if you're looking to have this type of career. Can you talk us through some of those trends and, and what you recommend? Yeah, so we're seeing um, our biggest demand right now by far is around Python um, and is around data science. Um, and we're just seeing that across the board. Um, I, I can't really stress this enough. So even with a lot of clients that we work with, typically they will want to understand that there is at least a fluency in the fundamentals of Python. Um, and that will be tend to be the eligibility criteria for a lot of junior jobs. Um, but you don't necessarily have to go on and become a Python dev, a backend dev, uh, you know, they're using Python as that eligibility criteria for you to go into numerous roles around technology. Yeah. Um, it, ten it tends to be the acid test now. So a lot of what we do uh, around our Python certifications is to get you through those eligibility criteria uh, to be able to then get a job or create the building blocks for any uh, job in technology. Um, yeah. Data is a, I want to say new, but nothing's new in tech, right? Like, uh, you know, everything's old news. But I would say data is definitely a trend that we're seeing on the rise. Okay. So if you look at our career switcher courses right now, the highest demand we have in career switcher courses is for data science. Yeah. We teach SQL um, as a way of understanding um, data uh, bases, which is the foundations really of data science and it's a really good way in to start thinking about apis and how yeah. databases connect with websites or with apps um and i think it's going to be a really 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 big frontier because from what i'm hearing uh from industry is they have um it, it's it's one stage worse in terms of uh female data scientists they have even less female data scientists than female front-end or back-end devs so it appears like the data science part is going to become the new frontier in terms of necessity for a lot of these businesses. Uh, and, and, you know, it's quite frankly, huge level of application within a business. So for example, you know, we talk to teaching analysts about um, databases and SQL uh, and data science because it will help in the everyday flow of their job. We're not just talking here about people that are become, going to become dedicated data scientists. We're talking about, a wide, wide application of data and coding within industries. Yeah, um, I look at, to, if I wanna find where a, I think a trend is going, then mm -hmm. I, I look into the strategic consulting firms mm -hmm. because they've worked this out in advance of me, um, typically, so I just go have a look there. So we're talking about, um, you know, a McKinsey or an OC strategy or a Bain, um, because what they're doing is they're obviously going into a company mm -hmm. and they're using the most cutting edge technology to pull out as much data as possible, draw the insights from it and then trigger back strategy. Yeah. And so what I've seen um, there is that you absolutely have to have, as you say, Python and also R and you have to have a fundamental understanding of SQL, SQL. That is if you want to be a consultant, um, but therefore also if you want to understand how the data in a business sits and what to do with it, it's incredibly useful. Um, have you have you been taking these courses yourself? I don't know how um, how kind of we haven't gone into your background yet. How literate you are in coding yourself? 
Of course, religiously, Lord. <laughs> me too, me too. I'm always doing it. If I get a spare minute, I'll be coding. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I mean, my, my background is very much around kind of ed tech and, you know, um, business strategy and building businesses up. Uh, but it's always been within the realm of educational technologies. Um, I have done the courses. I'm very proud. Uh, I will often sit in the back of classes when we were doing face-to-face -face, um, with a lot of the women and code along with them. Uh, I'm actually starting one of our virtual sessions on Monday as well. You'd be pleased to know. Um, but no, hands up. Uh, I would not ever describe myself as a coder. Um, it's important for me to understand and to experience what the women experience. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't say that coding is absolutely integral to, for me to be able to do my job. It is very important for me to understand what the women are going through. It's important for me to understand trends. It's important for me to do the fundamentals. Uh, but I don't think there's any risk anytime soon of me running off and, um, uh, and becoming a, uh, a dev. <laughs> And um, if we do go back and just understand a bit mm -hmm. um, more about your, your, your background that, that led you to this super cool opportunity, um, you've, you've touched on the fact that you were working in EdTech, um, that you've been working in online businesses mainly, and we're, we're, we're shocked at the kind of face-to-face -face events that um, CoFirst Girls are now, now operating. Um, but if we go all the way back to, to, to university and education, you, yeah. you had, um, you, you, what, were you, what were you doing at that point and what did you kind of set out to do? Uh, I, I don't think I really know what I wanted to do, to, to be brutally honest. And I, I think that's why, one of the reasons why I empathise with a lot of the women that come on our courses. Um, I don't think I necessarily picked my degree with a view to becoming what I am today. Uh, in fact, there's no way I could have predicted that. Um, and I think that there is a bit of a, bit of a I, I find sometimes education very rigid. I find this sense that, you know, once you pick these GCSE subjects and then you pick your A-level subjects and then what you're good at automatically feeds into your university degree. And then you pick which university you're gonna go to based on those topic rankings looking back and reflecting on that process i actually think it was very rigid um and of course what i realized uh, i'm going to say when i joined the real world somewhat is there's much a much greater level of fluidity around education there's a much greater level of fluidity around skill and really i think what the most successful people i know are probably very agile and they move very quickly and they're quite spontaneous in situations and they probably never stop learning. Um, so there's absolutely no way that I think if you look back at my university choices, that you would ever think that I would be here. I mean, I am the classic English and history, uh, you know, what, what's a graduate like that going to do? They're going to be on the scrap heap, you know. Um, <laughs> but I happen to be very good uh, at business and I also loved technology as well. Um, and a lot of these women might be in similar situations. So some of the best coders that we have, guess what? They're studying arts degrees. Um, and they're not, they can, you know, they can enter the, the industry. They just need to feel that they're supported in that process. And whilst you were going through those, um, 
those first business years um, and you were finding out, okay, you know, what is it that I'm going to focus on? But I like yep. this. I've got a agile uh, way to myself here that's suiting business. Set the scene for us a little bit. What was going on whilst you were doing that? Where, 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 so you come out of the language degree and where were you in London? Uh, no, so I studied in Edinburgh. Um, and then after Edinburgh, you, you started working where? I wanted to stay in Edinburgh, uh, but I think my parents almost bribed me to come back down to London because <laughs> they didn't want me to be so far away from home. Uh, but yeah, I, I was studying in Edinburgh for five years. And then um, after that, I moved back uh, home, uh, which is London Southeast. Uh, and I got my, my first proper job, really. Um, I'd had experience of working in my mum's businesses because my mum had an educational technology business, a very early ed tech business that she was the CEO of. Uh, and I got my first proper job uh, and it was almost uh, like an educational consultant uh, role. And I got sent all around the world to work with companies, understanding what their kind of organisational cultural issues were, their issues around technology, uh, working across uh, borders and typically I would be sent in to craft solutions for them to make sure that the exec teams you know operated at a different level um, and I was really young in that process I was like uh, you know 20 23 24 when I was doing that and I absolutely loved it um, and that threw me into uh, organizational uh, education um, and yeah, it sort of, it, it progressed from there and I started to join very well-known online companies uh, that became hugely successful. So, so that, early, that early phase, you're, you're, you're fortunate in the fact that you're a bit of an outlier where you've gone and joined commerce similar to what your mum had had a company in. Yeah. So you'd experienced... Um, how she went about it and then perhaps she was a useful mentor as well for, for, for pointing you in the right direction um, yeah. I always say that um, <laughs> you never quite learn P&L when your family's mortgage relies upon it uh, <laughs> you, you live breathe and sleep P&L because quite frankly you know when it affects your personal life to such an extent you never look at business in the same way again. You, I don't look at business like I'm playing with someone else's money. I look at business as, you know, if this was mine, if this was going to affect my fundamental livelihood, what decisions would I make and what would be sensible in this scenario and what risks should I take? Yeah. That's exactly how I run Code First Girls. That's, um, it's interesting you say that because I grew up with um, an entrepreneurial just over from Lebanon uh, father. Who <laughs> kind of networked his way around all the rich Arabs in London. and uh, you know one month would have a drawer full of fifty pound notes and casino chips, and, yeah. then, the, and then the next month that that drawer was empty. Um, so why ever went into managing my own P and L myself after that lesson? I do not know, but um, I've actually got in this business. Um, my sister working in the business so <laughs> so she she's she's crazy as well i don't know what it is when you've got an entrepreneurial uh, parent but i suppose it's useful isn't it you do you do learn some things and particularly then if you, you go into what they've they've done then perhaps you um you can be pointed in the right direction or or potentially learn from some of their mistakes um 
<laughs> so, so then you get to um, being selected for um, Code First Girls. And yeah. e EF obviously uh, incredible in terms of what, what they do. I don't know what cohort they're on now, but it's, it's up there in the, the tens, right? Ten cohorts yeah. of phenomenally successful um, startup businesses. And, um, you know, the, the, the founders are kind of recommended by royalty and just doing a great service, putting us on the tech, putting us on the tech scene. And then they've come up with this, this initiative with, with a board of, of uh, people. Mm -hmm. And um, how did you get in the running for this? Did they reach out to you? You guys have been working with each other. You applied for the role. Um, how did this come about? Really, really good question. So Code First Girls had come up on my radar regardless. Uh, and at the time, I've been working with quite a similar organization to EF, uh, but different in many, many ways. Uh, similar in that, you know, they look at kind of incubator and accelerator-based programs. Um, I'd made the connection that Code First Girls uh, was a product of Entrepreneur First. And I started researching it and I knew that Amali, uh, the previous CEO, uh, was making a move and it was purely spontaneous. I basically sent, uh, just sent a message. I didn't even really think about it that much. That sounds awful, doesn't it? I should say that I did a huge amount of preparation. Um, but I'm a big believer that if something works and if there's a fit there, somebody will give you the time to maybe explore it and see what the fit is. Um, and yeah, so when, when I saw it come up, I was kind of thinking that's worth me um, sending a message about, which is what I did. Uh, and yeah, you know, pretty much instantaneously, I received a response, which was fantastic. Um, and yeah, it was kind of as simple as that, dare, dare I say it. Um, not not much more to it that's good i mean that's that's i wasn't looking for a, a complex answer <laughs> it, it tends to be that way doesn't it when it when it um when it is simple then it probably is right like you say um is there anything else that you'd like to take the chance to get across to the audience anna um i don't think so other than uh i would say any woman um or guy that's listening right now um, you know, if you want to get involved in any way, shape or form, um, please do, you know, we, we rely on guys, um, to help us as well, as much as possible within the community. They're actually integral to ensuring that we close this gender gap. Um, so these messages aren't just going out to women. We very much want guys as part of the journey. Um, and yeah, if women are interested in changing, uh, their career prospects or moving into a new role. Um, it doesn't really matter what age you are, uh, we can still help you to do that. So, you know, please look us up and um, let's see what we can do to help. Absolutely amazing. We'll um, share a bunch of links underneath the podcast um, so people can reach out to you as an additional method and certainly champion the cause moving forward. Brilliant work you guys are doing. I wish you all the best. Thank you very much, Lloyd. Thank you for the interview. Please do visit us at marnasearch.co.uk. At Marna, we find fintech talent by filling the gap between the archaic search firms and the voluminous recruitment firms.
we are connected with the best talent within fintech. We conjure our headhunting skills to search and find the mana of the best teams. Please get in touch to find out how we can connect you with the very best talent in the market. All that's left for me to say is thanks once again for your support. Take care, stay safe, and see you very soon on Searching for Mana with Lloyd Warhead.